Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. Coming up in this episode, you've been hearing a lot about Weird Darkness Publishing's very first release, the novel of A Mad Brain by Scott Donnelly. So I thought you might enjoy hearing the first half of the novel, which takes you right into the dark, creepy action. If you're new here, welcome to the show. While you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com for merchandise, my newsletter, to enter contests, to connect with me on social media. Plus, you can visit the Hope in the Darkness page if you're struggling with depression or dark thoughts. You can find all of that and more at WeirdDarkness.com. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. It is a house that calls you, a house of darkness that will fulfill the desires of a mad brain. It is a house that haunts you with its ghosts, your ghosts. They'll scratch and claw through your fragile hide, bringing madness bubbling to the surface. Come see the ghosts for yourself. I just stared at the paper in my hands that contained these words. They were elegantly typed on a clean sheet of white paper. I picked up the torn envelope from the kitchen table and looked at it again for a return address. I hadn't seen one upon my initial glance, and this time wasn't any different. Weird, I thought. At this point I assumed the letter had been mistakenly put in my mailbox. The regular postman was off on his honeymoon, so a substitute carrier could have easily made the mistake. It happens. Plus, besides my home address, there was no name on the envelope to accompany it. We'd only moved into this house in the Summer Glen subdivision a year before, so the letter might have been meant for any number of previous residents. I stuffed it back into the envelope, scribbled wrong address on it, and shoved it vertically between the toaster and coffee pot, where it joined some other letters and papers that I needed to get around to eventually. Kayla, my wife, hated my vertical paper stockpile. She cringed every time she saw it, but for some reason never did anything about it herself. It made me feel like I had more time to take care of it, so eventually is when I'd take care of it. I left the kitchen where the smell of bacon still filled the air from breakfast, and I lingered by the bookshelf. I'd read almost my entire collection, but the few that were left that I hadn't gotten around to continued to get beat out by the likes of Steinbeck, Lovecraft, and Poe. Sometimes a comfort read sounded better than a new adventure. That line of thinking had kind of mirrored its way into my life as well. I was 42 and not getting any younger. Comfort was winning in more parts of my life than I liked to admit. Hooded sweatshirts and windbreaker pants were still in as a go-to weekend get-up as far as I was concerned, and a loose pair of jeans and a golf tee for the office worked just fine for me. 
reruns of Seinfeld beat any new sitcom they could create, and even popping in a DVD instead of searching through a plethora of streaming options was favorable. The world had become such a fast-paced, digital haven that, although fascinating, I just couldn't keep up with it. "'Dad, move!' my son yelled at me. I turned from the bookshelf and saw Mark standing behind me, aiming his iPhone in my direction. He lowered the phone and repeated, "'Move! You're in the shot!' "'What shot?' I said. I turned around and saw one of our skull Halloween decorations sitting on the bookshelf. Fake blood was oozing from its eyes and dripping down onto the wood. "'What are you doing?' I asked, annoyed by his confusing teenage antics. Mark sighed loudly and stormed over, shoving the phone into his pocket. He grabbed a nearby rag and wiped the blood up from the skull and wooden shelf. "'What are you doing?' I repeated, more annoyed now that he chose to answer the first time in a waspish mean. "'Trying to make a TikTok video!' "'Uh, what?' Mark smirked. "'Come on, Dad, you've heard of TikTok. You're not that old, are you?' He finished wiping the blood from the bookshelf and dryly said, "'This skull is going to be hilariously singing the Monster Mash all over the house, even in the backyard!' In Mark's defense, I had heard of TikTok but in my defense, that was the extent of my knowledge. I didn't know what it did or where it was, and for the life of me, I didn't know what any of that had to do with a singing skull. Mark tossed the bloodied rag over his shoulder, grabbed the skull, and hurried out of the room. TikTok, challenges, memes. I loved what technology had done for the world, but some of this stuff had just gone too far, not to mention completely over my head. I lay in bed with Kayla that night. She was reading another of her young adult fantasy books that seemed to still be so popular, and I had one finger on the remote continuously flipping through the endless apps on the TV across the room. It was hard to see the words from where I was laying, so I was trying to make my decision by the thumbnail images alone. Oh, Kayla abruptly said, laying her book down, I need you to fix the railing on the back deck tomorrow. My parents will be over later this week, and I was thinking about having a bonfire out back. The last thing I need is for my dad to go plunging off the side of the deck when he does his leaning thing. Sure, I said. I didn't say anything else after that. There was always something that needed fixed around the house. A railing, a kitchen drawer, tightening doorknobs. I was starting to think my life had become too comfortable, repetitive. I decided to just turn the TV off and I rolled to my side. I could hear Kayla turning the pages of her book as I drifted through thoughts of how boring my life actually was. I felt like I was accomplishing nothing. I was a faithful husband, a great father, and the hard-working breadwinner for my family. I wouldn't change any of that. But I did need something else, something to re-energize my existence. The next day, I arrived at work with a coffee in hand and new motivation in the back of my mind. The library in town that I ran had been there for decades and underwent some remodeling at least once every couple of years. This year just happened to be a big one. They had knocked out the cafe near the entrance and were installing a daycare center for children. I was the one who signed off on the final papers to give them the go-ahead, but I still had reservations about the project. The library was supposed to be quiet. Children were not quiet. I could already hear the complaints coming in. After we opened the doors for the day, with the construction area safely blocked off, 
I fielded complaint after complaint from the patrons who were there to either study or do research. The drilling is too loud. The construction guys were looking at me funny. There's too much dust and I can't concentrate. Those were just a few of them. I knew the construction created a distraction, but there was nothing I could do about it. I apologized to seven or eight patrons before my lunch break arrived. I sat down to eat my brown-bagged sandwich and Ziploc'd bag of chips, and any motivation I had brought in to work with me that morning had completely evaporated. I stared into space as I chewed and swallowed my lunch. "'Idiots!' a young man's voice shouted loudly from behind me in the office. I turned around and saw Tim, one of my employees, slamming a small stack of books down onto his desk. Tim was fairly new, some sort of extended family friend on Kayla's side who desperately needed work. His father had recently passed away, and fate put him here with me. Tim sat down, pulled his desk drawer open, and grabbed a roll of clear packing tape from inside. I sat down the last couple of bites of my sandwich and walked over to him. What's wrong, Tim? I asked. He looked up at me. No respect, Mr. Morris. Tim flipped open the book at the top of his stack to reveal several torn pages. I nodded and shared his frustration. Some people. Tim tried to tear off some of the packing tape, but it folded in and stuck to itself. I could see him becoming more and more irritated. Can I help? I asked. Thanks, Tim said without an ounce of hesitation. He methodically removed the top three books from the stack and set them aside. He lifted the bottom three and handed them to me. I immediately stared at the matte cover that faced me. The book was called Ghost House and prominently featured a decrepit old house with the faded image of a creepy-as-hell haunted doll's face above it in the dark clouds. I just stood there and stared at it. The image bothered me. I could feel my heart start to pick up its pace and then for some strange reason I thought of the letter I had grabbed out of the mailbox a day earlier. Mr. Boris, are you okay? Tim asked, snapping me out of the aberrant trance that had tamed my senses. Yes, I said. I gathered my thoughts and carried the books back to my desk. I finished my lunch before I taped the torn pages back together. My shift ended and Ashley, the head librarian, took over until close. I drove home, still feeling a bit uneasy but unable to place exactly what was wrong. The Ghost House book cover bothered me earlier in the day, but that couldn't have been what my subconscious was still carrying. It didn't make sense. My entire body had been pricked with anxiety since lunch. I pulled into the Summer Glen subdivision and onto my street. The wind had picked up, ripping more and more of the dead leaves off the trees and sending them spinning through the air before gently landing in the grass or on the road. It was only a matter of time before all the trees would be bare and the cold weather would arrive. As I got older, I dreaded the cold like never before. It hurt my bones and stung my skin. I shook my head as I pulled into the driveway, annoying myself. I was starting to feel like my dad or grandfather. Grumpiness seemed to be hereditary in the Morris family. I grabbed the mail before I went inside. Kayla was cooking chili on the stove and Mark was nowhere to be seen. I kissed my wife, giving her a tight hug immediately after. I'm glad you're home, Kayla said. I kissed her one more time, an innocent peck on the lips, and said, me too. I looked around as the invisible teenager became more obvious. Where's Mark? At Jenny's house. He promised he'd be back before dinner was on the table, but this chili is in simmer mode now, so his time is just about up. 
I sighed hard out of my nose. Mark was becoming famous for his late arrivals. You give the boy an inch and he takes a mile. I dropped the mail on the table, pulled my phone out, and sent him a quick text telling him dinner was ready and he'd better get home immediately. Kayla fingered through the mail. She pushed aside the junk, separated out the loan bill, and picked up a letter that had found its way to the bottom of the pile. What's this? she asked. Kayla turned the letter around, and my stomach sank. It was a white envelope, with only our address written on it. I snatched it out of her hand and looked it all over for a return address, but there was none to be found. Sam? What is it? she repeated. I was aware I hadn't answered her, but I didn't know what it was. I was hoping it wasn't another one of those ghost letters. It was weird enough not knowing what the first one was all about, and I could only imagine that knowing what it meant could be even more strange. I ripped the envelope open and pulled out another piece of crisp computer paper, neatly folded over once. I unfolded it, and a small two-by-two photo fell out and onto the floor. Kayla picked it up as I read the neatly typed words on the page. In this house of ghosts, truths will be discovered and lives will be changed, for life in this house is nothing more than an appraisal. This letter confused me even more than the first one did. My mind raced every which way, but I couldn't figure it out. It has to be meant for someone else, I thought, as I looked back at the address on the envelope. It was our address, but the lack of any name continued to baffle me. What is this place? Kayla asked, handing me the small photo that had fallen from the letter. I cautiously took it from her and looked at it. It was a black-and-white image of an eerie-looking gothic castle. It was nighttime in the photo, and the blackness was so oversaturated that it made the details of the castle almost impossible to identify. There was nothing else in the photo. No date or names, no location. It was the strangest thing. I finally answered my wife, I don't know what this is. We got one yesterday, too, I said, grabbing the first one out from between the coffee pot and toaster. I handed it to Kayla and she read it. She then took the one from my hands and read it as well. She was just as clueless as I was. A joke, maybe? she said. I shrugged. Maybe. Right then, Mark burst in through the back door attached to the kitchen. He closed the door and looked at us completely out of breath. He then looked to the table where the dinner had not been dished out yet and smirked. Made it, he huffed. The three of us ate chili for dinner, and the letters and picture of the castle quickly became the topic of conversation. I insisted they were meant for our house's former residence. Kayla seemed to think it was some sort of prank, but Mark had a very modern Generation Z angle. It's some sort of throwback viral marketing, he proclaimed. Using a letter gives it a vintage effect, which may be a clue as to what they're marketing. Wouldn't that just be regular marketing, though? I asked. Lots of places and companies advertise through the mail. Mark arrogantly chuckled. No, Dad. The cryptic nature alone makes it modern, a la a form of viral marketing from the internet. It's not signed. It's not dated. The inclusion of Dracula's castle, not to mention it's not addressed to anyone in particular, that means it's completely random. Some company probably sent out a mass mailing of these across the city, maybe the state. I bet someone on Reddit has already started a thread on this. Reddit? I asked. Mark rolled his eyes and I already felt older before he said anything. Online forums. These types of things really get people talking. It's kind of cool. 
I pulled the photo of the castle across the table and looked at it. Does this place look familiar to either of you? Is it a landmark somewhere? Mark shrugged. Where was the letter postmarked from? I grabbed the torn envelopes and looked for the postage. I looked at the front and then the back. There was no postage. No stamps. No postmarks. Nothing. How had I not noticed that before? Mark grew giddy when he realized this. Man, Dad, someone put these in our mailbox. Someone was outside our house physically giving these to us. Right then, the gears in my head began to shift direction. No longer was I confused about the letters, but now I was concerned for the safety of my family. Someone putting the letters in our mailbox two days in a row meant that person knew who he or she was giving them to. We were targets for something. We'll continue with Scott Donnelly's Of a Mad Brain by Weird Darkness Publishing when we return. Want to receive the commercial-free version of Weird Darkness every day? For just $5 per month, you can become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. As a patron, you get commercial-free episodes of Weird Darkness every day, bonus audio, and you also receive chapters of audiobooks as I narrate them, even before the authors and publishers hear them. But more than that, as a patron, you're also helping to reach people who are desperately hurting with depression and anxiety. You get the benefits of being a patron, and you also benefit others who are hurting at the same time. Become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. A storm moved in that night, creating the atmosphere for the week of Halloween that you'd normally only see in movies. The thunder was loud and the lightning was frantic. The wind pounded the shutters outside our bedroom window, creating a sleepless environment. Well, for me at least. Kayla could sleep through a Category 5 hurricane. Even if there wasn't such a violent storm attacking us from outside, I wouldn't have been able to sleep. The letters were bothering me. The photo was bothering me. Rustling out from the depths of my brain, the faded image of the haunted baby doll on the cover of Ghost House began to make my chest flutter. I rolled onto my side and closed my eyes, trying to erase the haunting images of the doll. As the doll left my consciousness, the castle appeared in all of its gothic glory. When the castle faded away, a woman's blood-curdling scream ripped my eyelids back open. I sat straight up in bed and listened to the thunder crashing over the top of the house. It rattled the pictures on the wall as well as a grouping of Kayla's perfume bottles on the dresser. Kayla was still asleep, only barely adjusting herself after the enormous boom. One of the picture frames hanging over Kayla's vanity dropped from its nail and broke on the ground. I hopped out of bed and rushed over to it, turning on a small lamp nearby. I picked up the frame and saw the glass insert had only broken in two and didn't shatter into hundreds of little chips and shards. I looked at the picture in my hand. Mark was only four or five years old in it. He sat on a picnic blanket between Kayla and I at a park, and Kayla's sister Madison photobombed from the right with a huge and ornery smile on her face and her signature white-framed Looney Tunes sunglasses upon her head. The way the glass had cracked separated Madison from the rest of us. The bedroom door creaked open, letting light in from down the hall. I stood up fast to see Mark standing there in sweatpants and a t-shirt rubbing his eyes. "'What did you do, Dad?' Mark groggily asked. "'Nothing,' I whispered. The thunder shook the castle picture off the wall." "'What?' Mark asked. 
I didn't realize I had said castle until a moment later and then corrected myself. The picnic picture, I mean. I held it up for him to see. He nodded, still wondering why I had said castle first. I didn't even know. As Mark turned to leave the doorway, I briskly followed him into the hall and quietly pulled the bedroom door shut. It clicked and Mark turned around to see me. Is there a way to search for the castle online without knowing the location? I asked. Mark's dead stare turned into a grin. Uh, yeah, you can do a reverse image search. Finally, I was getting somewhere. Let me get it, I said. As I descended the stairs, I could feel Mark's eyes affixed on me, probably wondering why I needed to know right then. I didn't have an answer for that. We sat together in Mark's room at his computer. I watched as he whizzed through the screens with ease and was instantly brought back to a time when I was a young kid and the extent of my electronic knowledge was blowing into the undercarriage of a Nintendo cartridge. No matter how much of a myth that act is played off as now, there's no doubt it worked. Thanks for doing this, I said. Mark spurked arrogantly again. Technology isn't all that bad, right, Dad? It's fascinating, I said. But I wouldn't give him any more than that. I still found more trouble in it than good. But again, maybe that was my age talking. I noticed Mark's attention to the computer drifted, and he now gave an awkward look to the shelf above his desk. The skull he was using for his video sat up on it with the bloodied rag next to it still. Mark swallowed hard and then returned his attention. He took a picture of the castle photograph with his phone and airdropped it onto his laptop. Okay, that's pretty cool, I thought. With a few more clicks and swipes, he had traced back the image before I even knew what was happening. I leaned in closer and looked at the plethora of castle images on the screen. That's it, Mark said. He sat back in his seat, satisfied with himself. I turned the computer toward me and looked through the images. They were all of the same black and white structure as in my photo. Some of them were taken at night, some during the day. The daylight photos made the castle less ominous and more regal but the night photos returned it to being almost haunted. It looked like something from a movie. It was large, sat tucked behind trees in a dense forest, and a moat or stream seemed to surround it in some of the images. Where is this place? I asked. Mark didn't answer. I looked at him, but he was once again focused on the skull. I noticed his breathing was slightly elevated, like he was nervous or anxious. Mark? Mark came back to reality and clicked into one of the images and a new window opened. Castle Shade appeared in bold letters, subtitled with Shade Family Laboratory. I scrolled down, skimming the article on the page. Castle Shade was located in upstate New York, hidden deep in the Catskill Mountains. It was owned by the Shade family and was in the midst of its fourth generation of Shade owners and operators. I clicked into a link about the Shade family. The land was bought cheaply in the 1890s, the castle was erected in 1900, and it had been the home of the Shade Family Laboratory ever since. I squinted, trying to find out anything else, but the information was vague and limited. Mark yawned very loudly in my ear and I took the hint. Standing up from the chair, I said, "'Can you print me some of this information?' He nodded his head while exhausting yet another loud and irritating yawn. "'Thanks. Good night,' I said as I left his room." As I closed the door, I saw Mark stand up and drape the bloodied rag over the skull. The door latched and I stood there for a moment, curious about Mark's attentiveness to the skull. He seemed bothered by it. 
Strange. Thunder still rumbled outside, but much more faint than it had been. When I returned to my bed, I was finally able to sleep. My eyes ripped open to the sound of Kayla hustling into the bedroom. I sat up and saw the room was alive with the morning light coming through the unfurled curtains. Kayla rushed to the closet and rummaged through it. What's wrong? I asked. Madison, my wife anxiously said. She's missing. Missing? I exclaimed, briefly thinking that I may have still been asleep. For two days now. Wasn't it nice of my family to tell me? Kayla angrily and sarcastically quipped, tossing shirts, pants, underwear, and makeup in a duffel bag. I have to go help. She could be dead. I was thrown by the suddenness of it all, but Madison being dead seemed like a darkly fanciful presumption. It wasn't like Kayla to think that drastically. Mark's coming with me. Can you get off work? Kayla asked. I need to be there in case they find a body. Uh, of course, I said, placing her morbid and out-of-character assumptions aside. Wait, Ashley's out of town. I'm the only manager. Kayla nodded. She was clearly disappointed, but being a former manager herself, I could tell she understood that kind of problem. I'll call you when we get there, she said. Kayla zipped up the bag and hurried over to kiss me on the head. Love you, she said, as she raced out of the room. Love you! Keep me posted, I responded. She was too far away to hear it, but it was a habit we'd gotten into. You never know when the last time you'll see someone is. She screamed! A small voice whispered to me. I looked to the vanity where I assumed the voice had come from and saw the nail on the wall from where the picture had fallen overnight. I climbed out of bed and approached the broken picture that I'd left sitting on the vanity. The crack had separated Madison from the rest of us after the thunderous rattling had sent it crashing to the floor. She screamed. I quietly agreed with the disembodied whisper, remembering the blood-curdling scream that awoke me in the night. I dressed for the day and had a bowl of Cheerios. Mark had come through for me, leaving a few printed pages about the castle out on the counter. I leafed through them and, just as I had hoped, one of them actually had an address. I did my own search after coming across those details and was able to screenshot directions to the castle. It was only a two-hour drive. Kayla would be roughly two hours away in Pennsylvania with her family. I figured I had plenty of time to drive to Castle Shade, see what I could see, and get back in time. Ashley wasn't out of town, so I felt a little guilty for lying to my wife, but I just needed to see this place for myself. The intrigue had me gripped. It was a nagging itch that I needed to scratch. With fresh coffee in my travel mug and 90s rock on the radio, I hit the road for Castle Shade. The drive was peaceful. I was able to zone out and enjoy the autumn scenery. A sea of orange and red trees made up a bulk of the waving Catskills, and with my windows down, the cool scent of damp leaves filled the car. I cruised through the winding roads, singing along to the music I grew up with and thinking about my destination. It was so mysterious how I was somehow the recipient of these odd letters. I thought back to the first letter. It is a house that calls you. Indeed it was. It is a house that haunts you with its ghosts, your ghosts. This was the intriguing part to me. What ghosts? Come see the ghosts for yourself. Just as the letter suggested, I was on my way to do just that. The run-of-the-mill existence I found myself living in day in and day out 
was in desperate need of an arousing thrill. And tracking down this castle and everything it stood for was exactly the thrill I craved. Something caught my eye in the rearview mirror and I looked up into it. Nothing was there. I turned around and briefly looked into the back seat. Nothing. I swung back and faced the road that slid underneath my car like an accelerated conveyor belt, and I smirked. I imagined that doll sitting in the back seat. Its eyes were wide and white, soulless and cryptic, as if it held on dearly to a forbidden secret. I could even hear it laughing and cackling like an ornery demon. My smirk vanished and was replaced by a creeping sense of dread. I turned off the music and continued to drive through the mountains in silence, occasionally looking into my rear view. I even angled it down so I could have the entire back seat in view. I don't even know why I smirked to begin with. Just because I knew what it was up to? There was nothing funny about that doll. It is a house that calls you, a house of darkness that will fulfill the desires of a mad brain. Who were the Shade family? Why create cryptic letters? Was I randomly chosen? Specifically chosen? If so, how did the Shade family know about me? Did I know them? These were the questions that began to pepper my brain as I hit the final stretch of my drive. I pulled onto a gravelly road with no street sign, but I was certain it was the road specified on the map I had screenshotted. It led me through a more heavily wooded area than the rest of what I had traveled through thus far. The air was cooler, the trees made everything seem darker, and the road was wet as if it had rained here but not out on the other roads. Strange, I softly said to myself as I reduced my speed considerably and slowly steered around an abrupt, sharp bend. My eyes shot open and I slammed on my brakes immediately. My car skidded to a stop, shaking over the rocky surface of the road. When it finally came to a rest, I realized just how close I was to hitting a metal gate. I turned the car off and climbed out. The air outside was cold and dewy. The scent of a fire burning somewhere in the distance crept into my nose. Birds chirped in the wilderness that surrounded me, and the buzzing of cicadas grew louder by the second. I approached the gate that blocked the road. The white paint that once covered it was almost completely gone, now revealing an ochreous rust beneath it. The gate closed from one side of the road but didn't connect or latch onto anything else. I pulled on it and was able to open the path once more. I looked around into the woods with a familiar sense of dread coming over me. I felt like I was being watched. My heart rate picked up and I hurried back to my car. Closing the door hard, I tried to calm myself before I started the ignition again. I closed my eyes and took a deep breath. After I exhaled, I once again heard a soft, whispering voice. Welcome, it ominously said. My eyes shot back open and I immediately knew where to look. The doll sat in the center of the back seat, its head tilted downward at an awkward angle, and its body rested laxly against the back seat. The eyes were so white, so vacant of anything natural or living, they frightened me. I started the car and forcibly pushed the mirror the opposite way. I didn't want to look at it. My car crawled the rest of the way, crunching the small rocks beneath the tires, and finally revealing itself small bits at a time around the bend, Castle Shade sat before me. A moat surrounded it with a fragile wooden bridge that stretched across the width of water. 
I knew better than to put my car on it, so I pulled off into a small grassy area just before the bridge and turned off the ignition. I climbed out and locked the door before putting my keys in my pocket. I zipped my jacket up and slowly approached the bridge, keeping my attention focused on the castle that sat just beyond it. It looked just like it did in the pictures Mark found online, but seeing the perplexing monstrosity in person felt surreal, like finally meeting a celebrity that you've spent years watching on movie screens. Being October and Halloween only days away, it was also hard not to compare the structure I was looking at to the massive dwellings in Dracula or House on Haunted Hill. Castle Shade seemed like it was ripped straight from a classic horror film. The ashen stones it was constructed of were slick and glazed with a velvety moss. It towered in front of me with at least three floors that I could see. Dark windows were placed sporadically on all visible sides, and what looked like an empty bell tower was erected near the back of the castle. I took a step onto the bridge and felt firsthand just how fragile it was. It creaked upon my first step and only continued to lament as I made my way across. On the other side, the air was different. A notable chill surged through my body, springing to life scores of goosebumps and bristling hairs. I kept my attention forward as I made my concluding steps to the front entrance of the castle. Come see the ghosts for yourself. As the final line from the first letter repeated in my head, I found myself knocking on the castle's wooden door. Birds erupted loudly from the trees around me as I knocked. As they flew off, their frantic chirps grew faint and then non-existent. The cicadas had quieted, as did everything else. I was surrounded only by a haunting silence. In the overgrown bushes to my left, I saw a bicycle. It was a mountain bike, still with a new shine. The red color was bright, the tires seemed strong. It looked out of place considering the rest of the environment I found myself in. Someone else here, I thought? I hadn't seen any sign of anyone else until this point. Even the gate down the road was still closed, although if someone was on a bike or even on foot, it wouldn't have been that hard to just go around it. I knocked again and this time the door loosened and cracked open about a half an inch. It probably hadn't been closed all the way to begin with, and my knocking had jostled it from an unsecure position. I leaned in and tried to look inside, but it was too dark. Hello? I called out. My voice echoed inside. I waited in silence, hoping for an answer, but there was none coming. I looked down at my feet and watched as a wispy white fog began to seep out from inside the castle. I swallowed hard as the dread began to tingle throughout my body again. Had I made the right decision by coming here? In the middle of the woods, standing in front of what I now assumed to be just an abandoned castle, the revelation of my having fallen for a prank was too hard to ignore. I had made the wrong decision. Now my sister-in-law was missing and I wasn't there to help. Guilt began to flush the dread from my body and I pulled my phone from my pocket. I dialed Kayla's number and she answered immediately. She was crying. Sam? She sobbed. Hey, honey, I said, beginning to walk back to my car. I can come after all. Great, Kayla sniveled. There's a search party being organized right now. A search party? My heart sank. This was serious. This wasn't just one of her drunken one-night stands that got around in the family gossip chain. Madison could really be in danger. 
Kayla, I began, but couldn't find the right words. I was sorry, guilty, and not by my wife's side during such a horrible time for her. I'll be there as soon as I can. Kayla just cried on the other line. I love you, I said. She tried to say it back, but couldn't speak. I hung up so she didn't have to say anything. She was hurting, and I needed to be with her. Before I stepped onto the bridge, I heard the castle's door creak loudly. I stopped and swung around. The door was wide open, and in the ghostly mist that whirled out from inside the castle stood a woman. Hello? She said. I just stood there, staring back at the woman in the castle's doorway, not knowing what to make of her. She was young, maybe in her late twenties or early thirties. She was easy on the eyes, but looked tired. Her face was pale and she appeared nervous or even confused by my presence. She glanced quickly down at the red mountain bike in the bushes and then back at me. I assumed it was hers by the suspicious glimpse she took. She obviously lived close enough to Castle Shade to just hop on a bike. That meant she was familiar with the area and probably the castle itself. Hello, I finally responded. She seemed harmless enough, but life experience told you you can't trust someone based on their looks alone. Are you part of the Shade family? The girl appeared confused. No, she said. You don't work or live here, I asked. She didn't answer my question, but instead asked one of her own. Do you? I shook my head. No, I'm just visiting. Who lives here? She asked. The Shade family? I said. Well, that's what I gathered from online, at least. She nodded, accepting what I told her as truth. I didn't know her from Adam, nor did she me. She had no reason to trust what I was telling her, and trust goes both ways. What are you doing here? I asked. I mean, since you don't know who lives here. I could see doubt in her eyes now. She was unsure of me, but her desire for an answer proved stronger than her uncertainty. She pulled a pleated piece of paper from her jeans pocket. She meticulously unfolded it and looked at whatever was on it. Then she began to walk toward me. I stood my ground but remained wary. Again, her appearance was innocent enough, but for all I knew, she was the one who had lured me here. As she walked closer, I was able to get a better look at her. She was about a foot smaller than I was, thin, and now appeared more than likely to be not significantly older than my son. She stopped at arm's length from me and handed me the paper. I accepted it from her and looked at the typed words on the page. It was identical to the first letter I had received. I looked up from the paper and nodded to her. I got the same thing. I got a second one, too, with a picture of this place. Me, too, she said. Her voice was small and soft. I'm Becca Brown, she said. Sam, I said, smart enough to not give her my last name. We both looked at the castle, wondering now more than ever why we were here. I noticed Becca start scratching her arms like she had a rash under her green and white baseball shirt, which turned into a distraught rubbing. She then appeared to brush herself off with a shiver as if she was covered in bugs or something. I watched her curiously. What an odd girl. And then together we made the inexorable decision to enter Castle Shade. We'll continue with Scott Donnelly's Of a Mad Brain by Weird Darkness Publishing when we return. The first letter seemed harmless enough. 
possibly even just the result of a mistaken delivery. The second one drew concern, and paired with the unexplained visions of something darkly unsettling, Sam Morris finally caves. The everyman safe world he lives in is about to take a drastic and dark turn. He quickly falls into a world of insanity, the morbid and the macabre. He's drawn into a darkness that is just as deadly as it is mysterious. A darkness that dwells in a house that could only be conjured up by a mad brain. It is a house that calls you, a house that haunts you with its ghosts. They'll scratch and claw through your fragile hide, bringing madness bubbling to the surface. Come see the ghosts for yourself. If you dare. Weird Darkness Publishing presents Of a Mad Brain by Scott Donnelly. Now available on paperback, ebook, and audiobook versions through Amazon and WeirdDarkness.com. Becca and I stepped through the white mist and into the front room of the castle. The air inside was cold and damp. I closed the door behind us, and any sort of subtle ambient sound that remained from outside, whether it be the distant chirp of an insect or the rustling of the leaves on the ground, was cut off. Becca and I found ourselves surrounded by an unsettling silence inside the castle. There was a soft drip that echoed from somewhere unseen, the sticky clicks from our shoes on the floor and a strange ringing in my ears that seemed to spike and then fade away once we entered. The area we had entered into was dark, save for some outside light coming through from somewhere. It was an open room with not much to it that I could see. It reminded me of an empty hotel lobby, a creepy and decrepit one for sure, but that was the best comparison that came to mind. There was no furniture, no front desk, this was supposed to be a laboratory, right? Where did you go when you were in here? I asked Becca. Not any further than this, really, she said. I called out, but no one answered. What do you know of this place? I asked. She shook her head. Becca was even more clueless than I was. I proceeded to explain the information Mark and I had only found was vague at best. I explained that this was Castle Shade, home of the Shade Family Laboratory, Built well over 100 years ago, it was supposedly on its fourth generation of Shade family owners. Well, it looks abandoned, Becca said, and as easy as it was to agree with her assessment, I refused to believe it. Someone led us here. Are they scientists? Becca asked of the Shade family. I didn't have an answer, but being a laboratory, I assumed there was science involved somehow. But what sort of active laboratory was this, neglected and desolate? Suddenly, something moved in my peripheral. I snapped my head to the right, and my eyes were drawn to the floor in a shadowy corner of the room. Something had scurried into the blackness. I stared into the shadows, hoping my eyes would adjust just enough to see what it was. Did you see that? I whispered. I could feel Becca looking around now from behind me. I could feel her eyes scanning the room. I didn't see anything. What was it? Becca responded. The doll, I thought. I knew it was that damn baby doll creeping around in the shadows. It was THE doll that led me here. This was his home, after all. My nerves began to tingle again as I focused on the dark corner of the room. I cleared my mind and imagined the doll sitting on the floor, hidden by its shadowy blanket, watching us and laughing. 
Its laugh was disturbing with hints of mockery and a cultish malice. Becca shrieked behind me, sending a high-pitched squeal bouncing off every wall in the room. I swung around and watched her hysterically brushing herself off. She screamed again, and I grabbed her by the shoulders. I squeezed tightly, seizing her full attention. What is it? I exclaimed. She stopped and looked into my eyes. She was addled and appeared spooked, as if she'd experienced an illusory torment. They were on me, she trembled. I was confused. What was on you? Shaken, Becca looked down at her body, seeing exactly what I saw. Nothing. There was nothing on her. She caught her breath and tried to calm down. Nothing, she shamefully confessed. The front door of the castle creaked back open. I guess I hadn't closed it tight enough. Lines of sunlight from outside spread across the floor and illuminated the corner where the doll had deviously crept into. I glanced to the corner, expecting to see it sitting there in the daylight. But I was wrong. The corner was empty. There was no doll, no white eyes glaring, no menace lurking. This had become a game to him. Can we leave that door open? Becca asked. Yeah, I said. I shook off the doll's presence and tried to focus on the room. I'd come all this way and discovered I wasn't the only one who had received letters. There had to be a logical explanation as to why the two of us were here. And now it was time to find out. There were four doorways along the walls of the room, not including the entrance. Two straight ahead and one on either side. Any one of those doors would lead us deeper into Castle Shade and any one of them could hold a clue, or even the answer, that would explain our being here. You check the door over there, I instructed Becca, pointing to the left side of the room. I'll check this one. I started walking to the door opposite of hers, but stopped when I heard Becca say, uh-oh. What? I asked. Splitting up in a dark castle just doesn't seem like a smart idea, she said. Haven't you seen any movies? She had a point, but this wasn't a movie. This was real life. A strange moment in real life, I'll admit, but the chances of some kind of demented castle freak with an axe lurking around every corner didn't seem all that plausible. That kind of thing didn't just happen in real life. We're sticking together, Becca said. I reluctantly agreed. Not knowing who she was, I thought it would be best to avoid any kind of confrontation. Although maybe she wanted us to stay together. Maybe she knew more than she was letting on. We'll go your way first she said. Becca then walked by me like she was taking charge. She walked to the door on the right side of the room and examined it before putting her hand on the chrome knob. I joined her side and encouraged her to continue. She turned the knob and pushed the door open. The next room was just as dark. We walked in together and found myself immediately looking over my shoulder. Something felt very wrong. My eyes darted back and forth in the darkness, now fully expecting to see someone. Emanating from the blackness, I heard someone breathing. It wasn't Becca, and it definitely wasn't me. It was raspy, dry, and coming from in front of us. Hello? I quickly called out. There was no answer, just the continuous breathing. Is someone in here? Becca whispered to me. Her question came out with a quiver, and she grabbed onto my sleeve. Who's there? I called out a little louder. The elevated volume of my voice seemed to agitate the breather. It was louder now, husky and forced. Whoever, whatever, was in the room seemed distressed by us being there. 
Becca looked off to the side and I noticed her reach for something. She let go of my sleeve and grabbed a hold of something else. With a small click, she ignited a battery-powered lantern. The bulb was dull and flickered as if it was in its last stretch of life, but there was enough of a glow coming from it to get a look at the room. There was no one there, and the breathing had come to an abrupt stop when the bulb lit up. It stopped, I said, confused. What stopped? Becca asked. The breathing. You didn't hear it? No. How could she not have heard it? It was the huskiest breathing I'd ever heard. Someone was just in here. Someone was messing with us. I stormed back out into the main room. Becca followed, still gripping the lantern, but now concerned. I could tell. Where are you going? Becca yelled. I'm leaving, I said. This is nonsense. I don't even know why I'm here. My wife needs me and I have no actual business here. I marched for the exit, enraged by my selfish decision to come here, and a loud cracking thud stopped me in my tracks. Becca stopped chasing after me. We both stood still and silent in the castle lobby. At least Becca had heard that. Thud. There it was again. It was coming from the door I had initially instructed Becca to go to. Why is that? She asked in a whisper. Thud. Someone was on the other side. I began to slowly walk to the door as the sounds continued. My nerves lit up again and my chest rattled. I didn't like being here anymore, and I only barely knew why I was here to begin with. My conscience told me to ignore the noises and just leave. Leave Becca, leave whoever was banging on the door, just leave. But my curiosity won the battle, and the smartest decision fizzled away into nothingness. I was in front of the door, reaching for the chrome knob. Just as I was about to touch it, another thud made me jump back. I'd had enough. I grabbed the knob and turned it, swinging the door open towards me. Someone was on the other side and crashed to the floor in front of us. Becca gasped, and I looked down at the stranger in disbelief. The size and shape of the body led me to believe it was a man, but his hands and head were bound with some sort of material, hindering any visual that would identify him. I continued to stand there, completely startled by the sight. The man grunted and groaned as if his mouth was gagged. Becca rushed to his side and sat the lantern down. She helped roll him onto his back and we both noticed the blood immediately. His leather jacket was covered in it. He's hurt, Becca screamed. She frantically tried to unwrap his face and hands. Sam, help me! I took a step toward them, but then felt an all-too-familiar presence. Dread flushed over me again, making me feel warm and dizzy. It could see me. It had its eyes on me once again. I looked up and saw it trying to hide in the shadows on the ceiling, but with white-hot eyes like that, it couldn't hide. I watched the doll, firmly pressed against the ceiling. It continued to just stare at me, taunting me with quiet torment. Suddenly it dropped, smacking the ground in front of me and sending a vibrating ringing deep into my ears as if a grenade had gone off. I covered my ears and winced, Keeping my eyes on the doll, which was motionless on its back, I waited for its next move. It wasn't done yet. All at once, both arms and both legs of the doll rotated and lifted itself off the ground. Its head turned unnaturally, once again resting its hollow gaze on me. Then it skittered across the floor like a manic spider, weaving back and forth, and then quickly at me. I screamed and leapt out of the way. What? Becca exclaimed. I looked at her as she helped the bloodied man to his feet. My heart was racing. The ringing in my ears faded back to silence and I scanned the floor around me. The doll was nowhere to be seen. 
and Becca seemed ignorant to it. Sam, help me, she begged, struggling to keep the man standing. I jogged over and helped unwrap the black gauze that concealed his head. When they came off, I saw the man's face. He spit out slobbery gauze that had been stuffed in his mouth and looked at me in relief. Thank you, the man said, catching his breath. He was tall and kept his black hair short and neatly buzzed. I'm Simon, he introduced himself. Sam, I said. Becca. I'd noticed Becca hadn't included her last name this time when cautiously introducing herself. I wasn't sure if that meant she had learned from letting it slide with me or possibly there was something about Simon that she didn't trust. Simon looked around the lobby of Castle Shade as I unwrapped his hands. Where are we? he asked. Becca and I shot each other a glance. This made three people now who didn't know either where they were or why they were there. This place doesn't look familiar to you? Becca asked. Simon shook his head. I glanced down at the floor behind me where the doll had fallen and it was nowhere to be found. I saw a flash of blood in my mind and turned right back to Simon. Blood covered his jacket. Are, are you hurt? I asked him. He looked down and acted surprised to see the blood. He shook his head again. No, I don't think so. Whose blood is that? Becca asked. Simon grew even more confused. He appeared worried, as did Becca. I watched her body tense up and she drew her arms in closer to her. She proceeded to scratch her arms again and then quickly brushed them off. She must have had some sort of odd tick or something, and that was now the second time I witnessed this behavior from her. She shuddered and let out a weak gasp and then backed away from Simon, looking her own body over. Simon noticed her behavior as well and asked, Are you okay? Becca seemed to shiver and appeared disturbed. They were all over me, she said. The worms. Simon looked at me for an answer, but I was just as lost. This was the first time I'd heard her mention worms. From what I could see, there was nothing on her, nor had there been. She must have been hallucinating. That thought started to jostle my brain in various directions, and I had an unnerving thought. Had I been hallucinating? After all, Becca didn't see the baby doll drop from the ceiling and crawl across the floor. Only I did. Certainly, that would have been noticed by someone else other than me. That is, unless it never happened to begin with. I looked around the lobby, trying to take in the entire scope of Castle Shade and make sense of it all. It was an old, abandoned castle filled with creaks and cracks, cobwebs in every visible corner. Was it haunted? My thought process mapped its way back to, why was I here to begin with? I didn't know anymore. A doll moving on its own was impossible. It wasn't real. It couldn't be. Finally, I found myself thinking clearly for the first time since I arrived here and was flushed with shame and embarrassment. I had been tricked into coming, and one of these two people before me were more than likely responsible. Why am I here? I asked. Becca, still clamping her arms to the sides of her body, looked at me. Simon looked at me, too. They weren't going to answer my question, so I tried a different one. Why did you bring me here? Becca seemed confused. I didn't bring you here. You came on your own. You came after me. I know that, I said. One of you must be behind this, and you were both here when I arrived. So, you obviously know something about this place. Who sent the letters? 
Neither Becca nor Simon answered. They chose to remain silent. I was growing more and more irritated with each passing second. How did you make that doll move? I asked, now refusing to believe the trickery that I had fallen for. Becca shook her head. What, what doll? Don't play stupid with me, Becca, I said. The doll, the creepy doll with the white eyes. You used it to lure me here. I don't know what you're talking about, Becca shouted, once again shaking the invisible worms off of her body. She squealed and backed away further as she brushed off her arms and then chest. She brushed her legs and shrieked again. I turned to Simon and he seemed to be in his head. Something was eating away at him inside. He started to hyperventilate and then said, I killed them. I couldn't comprehend what I was hearing and witnessing. Had everyone gone mad? Killed who? I asked. Simon brought attention to the blood on his jacket. All of them. This is their blood. The caller was right. Caller? I asked. The guy who called me, blaming me and accusing me of the murders, Simon said. He was so angry. So was I. Who did you kill? I asked. That's where Simon drew a blank. His facial expression went from frantic to still. He looked at me and I could tell he either couldn't remember or didn't want to say. I turned back to Becca. She was gone. Only the lantern remained on the floor. I spun around desperately trying to see her in the lobby. I called out for her, but only my echo responded. I focused on the door that Simon had come out of. It was still open and blackness shrouded the inside of the unknown chambers. This was the only place she could have gone. What's in there? I asked Simon, pointing at the room. He looked only to humor me, but was too far gone in his own head. He shrugged. I picked up the lantern and made my way to the door. That's where I stopped, hesitating in the moment. I decided to call out for Becca once more before I would brave the unknown darkness. Becca? Nothing. I stuck the lantern in the room first and then followed it in. It's funny how a little bit of light can be comforting. There was a dripping sound coming from somewhere in the room. It was louder than it had any right to be, but any other sound was absent. Becca? I whispered this time. She didn't respond, but I'd already expected her not to. Only the dripping sound was in here with me. I lifted the lantern up, shoulder level with me, and held it out as far as I could reach. I squinted, trying to see whatever I could, but it was impossible. The darkness overpowered the lantern's pathetic glow. I took a couple more steps in and tossed a quick look over my shoulder. The door was still open, but I couldn't see Simon. He was just out of view. My heart rate picked up again, and I turned back to the ill-lit void that lay ahead. My breathing picked up, challenging the drip, drip, drip in the room for the loudest sound. I stepped even further in. When I lifted my foot, a tacky residue snapped on the floor. I looked down, lowering the light to see what kind of sticky substance I was trudging through. That's when the light flickered inside the lantern, and all went dark. My heart stopped and my stomach twisted up in tight knots. A creaking noise erupted behind me, slow at first and then quickly became unafraid and thunderous. The door! I stood up and turned back to see the door closing fast. Someone was pulling it shut. Simon! I screamed. The door closed and latched, permanently extinguishing the pale light from the lobby. In the pitch black, I rushed over to where I knew the door was. I felt around the wet walls and eventually found my way to the wooden door. I grabbed the knob, but it wouldn't turn. It was jammed. 
Simon! Open the door! I screamed again. There was no answer from Simon on the other side. There was no noise whatsoever. I thought back to the blood that covered Simon and him claiming to have committed murders. It was him. He brought us here. He planned to kill us, but why? I'd never met him before in my life. But no. He was bound and gagged, trapped in a room. This room. Someone put him here, too. Becca, maybe? She looked young and innocent, but that didn't mean anything. She could have been the mastermind behind this, whatever this was. From my pocket, I pulled out my phone. I tried to call Kayla, but the signal was too weak. I tried texting her instead, but the text struggled to send, eventually coming back with a red, failed-to-send notice beneath it. Technology wasn't all powerful after all. I shoved the phone back into my pocket and tried to concentrate. I took deep breaths. There had to be a way out. I still held the lantern and tried to smack it a few times and jiggle the knob. Come on, I said to myself. Work, damn it! I slapped the bottom where the batteries would go and… light! The bulb flickered back on. The glow was weak, but it was going to have to do. I needed to make full use of it before it decided to shut off on me again. I held it up to the doorknob and tried to turn it again, but it was useless. I knocked on the door viciously with my free hand. Simon! Becca! Someone! Open the door! I shouted. I put my ear to the door and tried to listen for anyone out in the lobby. And not surprising at all, it was quiet. I faced the darkness again and took some cautious steps further. I didn't know how big the room was or even if there were any other… doors. That's it! There had to be another door. I moved to the closest wall and held the lantern up as close as I could to get the weak light to work with me. I started to walk the perimeter of the room, snapping through the sticky substance on the floor, praying I'd find another way out. I was over Castle Shade. Drip. 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 That constant sound seemed to get louder by the minute. Was it a leaking pipe? Moisture from the walls? Something that spilled and was now dripping from a table? I heard something move, the first sound in the room other than the drip and myself. Becca? I called out, hopeful that it was her. The noise continued. It was hard to make out but seemed like something shuffling about. It went from one side of the room to the other fairly quickly and then stopped. The dark was now disorienting and I didn't know which direction was which, but now I knew that someone or something was in the room with me. She screamed. A small, haunting voice whispered from the darkness. I'd heard it before, and I knew exactly who it was. The doll. Where are you? I gripped my teeth, becoming angry once again by the malefic object. It was haunting me, trying to frighten and unravel me. What did it want? I lost my patience. Where are you? I screamed. Two white eyes immediately lit up across the room. A shrill cry accompanied it. The eyes pulsated with a searing whir, loud enough to split my head open. I closed my eyes and slapped my hands over my ears, dropping the lantern. I couldn't even hear it shatter on the ground over the terrible sound the doll was emitting. Stop it! I screamed. It complied. There was silence once again. The whirring sound had stopped, as did the terrible shriek. I opened my eyes to the pitch-black room. The white eyes were gone and the slow dripping sound faded back in. I could hear my heart beating, thumping wickedly just beneath my ribs. The dark was starting to strain my nerves. 
I felt uncomfortable and restless, like I was stuck in a dream that I couldn't awake from. It reminded me of a recurring dream I had when I was younger. All the lights in my house were off. No matter what I did, I couldn't find a light switch. Whenever I felt like I had found one, my legs went heavy like they were made of concrete, preventing me from getting too close. There were screams in the distance outside that hoisted my fear, making me cry and quake with panic. There was laughter from just outside the windows. Something was always watching me, mocking me. It celebrated my fear. Through the tattered, blowing curtains against the window, I could only make out two small egg-shaped eyes glowing white-hot outside. A cackling laugh vented from its emotionless and lifeless porcelain mean. In the dark room within the stone walls of Castle Shade, I could feel the doll's presence again. It was like the dream I'd had since childhood had come to life. The doll was there, and the darkness swallowed everything. I had no light, no way out. My phone, I thought. How had I not thought of it before? I had a flashlight on my phone. I didn't need the lantern. I fumbled in my pocket and pulled out my phone. The screen lit up and the time stared me in the face. It was after 7 p.m. I'd been here all day. I held down the button on the screen that ignited the light on the opposite side. I squinted as my eyes absorbed the most vivid light they'd endured since entering the castle. The slow drip continued, and I shined my light around the room. It was larger than I thought it would be, stretching longer than it was in width. There were more doors, two of them actually. Both were side by side at the far end. I aimed the light at the ceiling, looking for the drip, but failed to observe any pipes. The floor was sticky, so I aimed the light down at my feet next. There was a dark, red substance coating the stone floor. It wasn't until I saw the substance that I felt like I could smell it. It smelled ripe, rusty. A shiver crept through my bones when I jumped to the assumption that the mysterious substance could be blood. I shook off the quivering chill and looked ahead again, toward the two doors on the other side of the room. The one on the right seemed to be open and leading into yet another dark room. The one to the left was blocked by a wooden door framed by metal plating. I took my time as I approached the doors. The slapping sound beneath my shoes was starting to drive me crazy. I didn't like the thought of old blood covering the floor, so I held on to hope that it wasn't. That hope was minimal, however. I took a deep breath and exhaled slowly as I now stood before the two doorways. Drip. Drip. It was louder now, like I should have been able to see what it was. The murky room that loitered to the right of me was filled with a cold and barren secret. A strange feeling slithered just beneath my skin. Instinct told me not to reveal the secret, but as the dripping sound started to gouge deeper into my conscience, I had to see for myself where it was originating from. I stepped in the room's direction, holding the light down by my side momentarily, building up the self-confidence I needed to just look. I was poised and ready now. A quick flash of unease and fear stung my body like a strike of lightning and I lifted my light. Hanging in front of me, in the shallowest part of the dark room, was the lower half of a woman's body. It gently swayed back and forth, creaking with blood dripping from her shadowy top half and pittering into a red puddle beneath her. The blood webbed out from the puddle into small rivers that traveled in the cracks of the stone floor. 
I gasped and stumbled backwards, crunching something beneath my shoes. I looked down, lifted my foot, and saw a pair of sunglasses completely shattered. As I looked at the bent white frames splintered across the floor at my feet, I noticed the faded imagery of the Looney Tunes logo. I knew who those sunglasses belonged to. I aimed the light back up at the swaying corpse in the dark room. She was dressed in black jogging pants, running shoes, and I could tell she was wearing a blue shirt. I swallowed hard as my body began to shudder. My heart was beating fast, and I felt flushed and lightheaded. I hesitated briefly before training the light on the top half of her. She was almost unrecognizable. With a thick noose wrapped around her neck, her skin looked bleached, her lips were cracked, peeling and curled in a disturbingly unnatural way. Her eyes were ajar, cloudy and void of all life. It was Madison, Kayla's missing sister, who hung before me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear the rest of this novel of A Mad Brain by Scott Donnelly, you can find it on Kindle, paperback, or audiobook, narrated by yours truly. Just look for Of A Mad Brain by Scott Donnelly on Amazon, or visit the Weird Darkness publishing page at WeirdDarkness.com. If you like Weird Darkness, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. And please leave a rating and review of the show in the podcast app you listen from. Doing so helps the show to get noticed. You can also email me anytime with your questions or comments through the website at WeirdDarkness.com. That's also where you can find all of my social media, listen to free audiobooks that I've narrated, shop the Weird Darkness store, sign up for the email newsletter to win monthly prizes, find other podcasts that I host, and find the Hope in the Darkness page if you or someone you know is struggling with depression or dark thoughts. Plus, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, you can click on Tell Your Story or call the Dark Line toll-free at 1-877-277-5944. That's 1-877-277-5944. Weird Darkness is a production and trademark of Weird Darkness, LLC. Copyright 2022, Weird Darkness, LLC. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 and 7. And a final thought from Ralph Waldo Emerson. For every minute you are angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. I'm Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Hey, Weirdos! This month, voting takes place at PodcastAwards.com, and Weird Darkness has again been nominated in two categories – Storyteller Drama and True Crime and I could use your vote. 
Visit podcastawards.com, register to vote, then make your selections from the drop-down boxes next to Storyteller Drama and True Crime. You can only vote once, but you can ask your friends, family, and co-workers to vote too to help Weird Darkness emerge victorious once the voting ends. Again, go to podcastawards.com and then select Weird Darkness in the Storyteller Drama category and in the True Crime category. You better hurry, voting ends July 31st. And thank you for your support of Weird Darkness, Weirdos! Hey Weirdos, if you're in Chicagoland or willing to drive here, well, you can join me as I host from the stage the 2022 Laugh or Die Comedy Festival in DeKalb, Illinois on Saturday, July 9th. And then, the very next day, Sunday, July 10th, I'm hosting Chicago's Indie Horror Film Festival. You can come on Saturday or Sunday, or grab a hotel room nearby and come to both. Both events are taking place inside a real castle, Altgeld Castle in DeKalb. On Saturday, you can watch comedy and horror films all afternoon, and then at 7.30, some of the best Chicagoland stand-up comics hit the stage to leave you dying from laughter. And then on Sunday, you can die again by being scared to death all day and all night from a grave full of the most frightening films coming out of the indie horror scene. You can get into each day's event for $25 each, or get both days for $35. And even better, just for weirdo family members, if you buy your tickets online before beforehand, you can get 5 bucks off of your tickets by using the promo code WEIRDO. This double-day event only happens once a year, and I am honored to be asked to be the host of both days. And of course, the Weird Darkness table will also be there with all the free stuff that I give away. So, if you are anywhere near Chicagoland, you do not want to miss this. It all takes place at Altgeld Castle in DeKalb, July 9th for the Laugh or Die Comedy Festival and July 10th for the Indie Horror Film Festival. Get the details for each event on the events calendar page at WeirdDarkness.com.